Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. If you have your copy of God's Word, and invite you to open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're in the midst of a series about the commitments of church membership. And the commitment we look to today is the commitment of unity, and it's based on 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, which I will read in just a moment. Paul is writing, of course, to the local church in the city of Corinth. Corinth was a city in the ancient world in what is modern-day Greece. It was a commercial crossroads. It was an incredibly wealthy and wicked city. The primary tourist attraction in Corinth was the temple to Aphrodite. Merchants would come from far and wide, and while they were in the city, they would go up to the temple of Aphrodite, and there they would have sexual relations with one of the hundreds of temple prostitutes there. And so it was a dark and an immoral place, to say the least. And it was into that environment that the Apostle Paul, on his second missionary journey, brought the light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And he began, as he always did, in the Jewish synagogues and stayed in Corinth for nearly two years. And so the church at Corinth had a good start. They had well-trained leaders. They had the truth of the gospel. But after Paul had left to go to other places, he began receiving reports back from Corinth about what was going on in his absence. And the reports were not favorable. The fundamental problem seems to have been that some in the church had never made a clean break with their Corinthian past. That is, they were allowing the culture of Corinth to manipulate and to change the church rather than the church having an impact on the culture. There was a liberal attitude towards sexual immorality and an overall unwillingness to correct sinning members. It's difficult to understand how a church that was founded by the Apostle Paul who had excellent doctrine and excellent leaders, could devolve into near chaos in such a short period of time. But sadly, it still happens. My wife, Melissa, and I spent four days this week in New England meeting with church planters there. If you remember your history lessons, you recall that the Great Awakening began there in the Connecticut River Valley. The Great Awakening took place between 1726 and 1760, and it was one of the greatest revivals the world has ever known. Tens of thousands came to faith. One historian estimates that one-third of the adult population of New England professed faith in Christ during that period. And they were led by some great men, one of them by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Edwards was a brilliant intellectual and a caring pastor. He graduated from Yale while still a young teenager. He was elected president of Princeton University shortly before his death. But Edward's protege was a man by the name of Eliezer Wheelock. And Wheelock founded Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire, for the express purpose of training pastors to go out and pastor those who were converted during the Great Awakening. I had uh, lunch on Wednesday at this college, Dartmouth, overlooking the green where Wheelock used to preach. There's still a chapel there with a sad little plaque in his memory. And the sad part of that plaque is that it's almost all that is left of evangelical Christianity there. 
That campus, like most New England universities, is openly hostile, hostile to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, just several generations after the Great Awakening. And so it is possible, if we do not hold tightly to the doctrines of our faith, that this church, First Baptist Church of Keller, could suffer the same faith. So you pray for the young men that we're working with in New England. They're doing great work, but it is exceedingly hard ground. As I said, there's a great warning in history that every generation of Christians must continue to hold to the true gospel lest they waste a good start. That was what was threatened here in Corinth as we come to our text this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul writes, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brothers, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now the first thing we see here in verse 10 is a strong exhortation to brothers. Strong exhortation to brothers. Paul says, I exhort you. Your English translation may say, I appeal to you, or I beg of you. They all mean the same thing. The Greek word is parakaleo, to come alongside and call out. It's the word we get paraclete, or advisor, or even lawyer from. One who stands beside you and helps. Paul is not being heavy-handed. Remember, Paul is the one who founded this church, and so it's very personal to him. But he's not heavy-handed, though he is obviously frustrated by what is going on in his absence. He's writing this letter to gently rebuke and correct a group of people that he loves, a group of people that he refers to as brothers. What a term of endearment that is. He does so, he says, by the name of the Lord. The Bible says that a good name is more valuable than rubies, fine silver. So the name of the Lord, and we are to pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, and he's speaking of Jesus here, is everything that is included in Jesus' claims. Everything that he did and claimed to be is included in his name. Speaks of his reputation. So Paul's exhortation to the Corinthian believers is based on their knowledge of all that Jesus has taught and all that he is. And when he calls them brothers, he's saying that we are united to Jesus in all that he said and all that he did in Christian fellowship. And based on that common relationship to Jesus, he calls on the factions, the warring parties in the church at Corinth, if you will, to unity. He says that you all agree. You're probably catching the tone of this letter already. It sounds a bit like a frustrated parent pleading with small children to play nicely with each other. There's some truth to that. The problem was widespread immaturity in the church at Corinth. They had failed collectively to make progress in sanctification. 
In fact, Paul later on bemoans the fact that he has to treat them as babies when they've been Christians long enough to be mature. Immaturity manifests itself in selfishness. And selfishness is the root of all disagreements, according to James 4, 1 and 2. Do you remember the brother of Christ wrote this? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Now, if you're a parent here today, you get this verse. You've seen small children at the earliest stages of development. If there is a toy that two siblings both want, they fight and quarrel. They don't naturally say, oh, no, sister, you take it today. They will fight to the death for some small piece of plastic. But it doesn't change much, unfortunately, as we get older. The things we fight over change. So as they grow into adolescence, they fight over the car keys. And then as they become adults, they fight over the inheritance. You see what I mean? It's this progression of immaturity. And so Paul identifies this immaturity as the primary problem in Corinth. There's much deeper issue at play than bratty children not sharing their toys. These people are all claiming to follow the same Lord, yet they have broken themselves into factions. That's why Paul asked the rhetorical question at the end of the section that I read, has Christ been divided? What he's saying is, has Christ been parceled out? And so this group has a little bit of Christ, and this group has a little bit of Christ. No, if you're a true Christian, you have all of Christ. Now, if you're immature, you're not appropriating all of the gifts that Christ makes available, but it's not as if he's holding out. It's not as if he's dosing it out among the factions in the church. And so he exhorts them. He strongly calls them as a brother to unity. Well, let's look secondly at the cause of the exhortation. He says it in verse 11. For I have been informed concerning you, my brothers, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now remember, this is the day before the internet and Skype and uh, even reliable postal system. And so the fact that Paul got this message indicates how serious the problem was. Likely some people in the church physically went to find Paul to tell him what was going on here. And they're identified as Chloe's people. We don't know a thing about Chloe. Almost all commentators agree this was a woman who was prominent in the church. In fact, what it just says in the Greek is those of Chloe's. And that's been variously translated as Chloe's family or Chloe's household. It simply means someone who was closely aligned with Chloe, someone that Paul obviously knew and trusted in the church. Now, don't take this verse as an indication that you need to be the secret police of the church, right? <laughs> Always telling on other people who aren't doing what they're supposed to be. But sometimes there are problems that are so egregious that the pastors need to know about, okay? But be, use your discretion in that, okay? It ought, ought to be very rare and, and, and very serious. In fact, Albert Moeller, president of Southern Seminary, years ago I was uh, listening to him preach on this at a, a conference where there were about 3,000 pastors. And he read that text and he stopped and he said, if you've been a pastor more than a year, you have met Chloe and you know her people, right? <laughs> and, and, and there's a lot of truth to that. 
But, but Chloe was someone who obviously Paul trusted and he believed the message that he heard. And so immediately he sends this letter back uh, with those who brought it. And, and so what was the problem? He says it was over factions in the church. Verse 12. Now I mean this. Here's the problem I'm addressing. That each one of you is saying I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm Christ. They were quarreling over who had authority and who was to be followed in the church. There was a, obviously was a Paul faction. Paul is the one who founded this church after all. And so there were still those first generation people who were converted through the teaching of Paul. And apparently they wore that as a badge of honor. Well, you know, Paul is the one who led me to faith. And so that gave them some standing in the church. So they thought. But then he says there's an Apollos faction. Well, who in the world is Apollos? Well, hold your place there in 1 Corinthians. Flip back a few pages to Acts chapter 18. And in Acts chapter 18, you read of Paul's coming to Corinth. And uh, we come to verse 24. Speaks of what was going on in Ephesus when Paul was at Corinth. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus. Now that little half sentence tells us a lot about Apollos. First of all, it says he was an Alexandrian. Now Alexandria was the premier city of higher education. And so to be called an Alexandrian inferred that this man had a great education. And on top of that, it says he was an eloquent man. Now that's interesting because when we read the description of some of the church members about Paul, they said he was not eloquent. He was great at writing letters, but as far as public appearance and public speech, they felt that he was lacking. And of course, uh, um, that's true of, of all of God's pastors. Some are more gifted than the others uh, in the pulpit. Others are gifted in different ways. But what was happening is that a group within the church likely who valued education, who valued eloquence and rhetoric, said, well, we're going to follow Apollos. And so Apollos ends up at Corinth. And by the way, as far as we can tell, there's no disagreement. There's no disunity between Paul and Apollos. It's just the people that were attaching themselves. And then he says, there's a group saying, I'm of Cephas. Now, Cephas was the Aramaic word for Peter, same person. We don't know a lot about this faction other than likely they were attaching some significance to the fact that Peter was alive when the Lord Jesus walked and talked there in uh, Israel. Paul was not one who was in that inner circle. He came to know the Lord Jesus after his resurrection. And that was always sort of held over Paul's head by some people, that you weren't one of the originals, right? That somehow your uh, apostleship is less than the others. And that may be the case here. But then you come to the Christ faction. They're saying, well, we're just of Christ. Now that sounds good until you dig down a little bit there. By the way, there will always be the Christ faction in the church. Those who say, we don't accept any authority except Jesus. And again, that sounds real good, except for the fact that when Jesus ascended into heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit in power, he gave to his apostles his authority. Here's how it plays out. There are those who, when they read the Bible, say things like, well, Jesus never says anything about this sin. And so even though Paul does, since Jesus doesn't, we'll go with Jesus. For example, there's a group of homosexuals 
claiming to be believers who say, since Jesus doesn't directly address the sin of homosexuality in the Gospels, Paul must have been skewed by his upbringing and by his legalistic pharisaical past. And <clears throat> so we can forgive Paul and accept what Jesus says. I saw a church like that this week, in fact, in New Hampshire. And, and that is nonsensical. We Baptists need to be careful at this point because I've heard some people read the Bible and they say, well, here are the red letters. These verses have more bearing and weight than Pauline letters. That is not true. Every sentence of the Bible is as authoritative as if Christ himself spoke the words. Paul says that all scripture is godly and is profitable for rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be perfected, that it may grow up unto all good works. And so here, here's the cause of the exhortation. It's these factions. It's these groups within the church. And again, there's a warning to those of us today in the church against undue attachment and loyalty to your leaders. Be careful about flattering your leaders. I, I know you mean well when you encourage us when we preach and say, yeah, you're, you're special. You're different. No, we're not. We're not. We're simply pulling on the oar until we die and someone else takes our place. That's how Paul thought of himself. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. You know this is my favorite passage in all the Bible. First sermon I ever preached as your pastor was this text. It's how to think of your pastors. He says it this way. Let a man, let a person regard or think about us, pastors, in this manner. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He said, there's, there's two words to think about when you think about your pastors. One, slaves. That's what that word is, slave. Not just any slave. It's the lowest slave. It's the slave who rode in a Roman warship, chained hand and foot. And do you know what happened when one of those slaves killed over dead? They threw him in the ocean and put another one in his place and went right along their business. Paul's saying, pastors are not the captain of the ship. We're just rowing on the oars. And one day we'll die and someone else takes our place. And then the second word he uses is steward. A steward, as you know, is one who manages property rightfully belonging to another. And so we said last week the church doesn't belong to any person. Certainly not the pastors. Church belongs to Christ. We are his, for this brief time, as long as the Lord would allow us and call us to it, in this particular geographical place, we are speaking in the name of the Lord and shepherding the Lord's people, but we don't have any inherent authority. It's delegated from Christ, and it's based on our allegiance to Him and to His Word. It's okay to say nice things and encourage pastors. We all need it. The Bible says to honor those to whom honor is due, but just be very careful that that does not get into the realm of, of flattery and inflating of egos. Slaves and stewards. God is the one who gets the praise. One of the most famous verses here is when Paul puts a summary point on his relationship of, to Apollos. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, what? God gets the increase. It's up to God to grow the church. And so since it's up to God to grow the church, he's the one that gets the glory when that happens. Well, that, that leads us to our third point. We, we've seen the exhortation that you all agree 
The cause of the exhortation is factions, rivalries within the church. Let's get now to the solution. He does offer a solution here, thankfully. First of all, he says, agree. Agree. Now, you as a parent know that uh, only goes so far. When your children are, are fighting over candy, you kids get along. It usually has to have some, some more weight to that. So later on in the letter, Paul says, look, I'm coming to visit soon. And when I come, I don't want to have to bring the whip. What he means by that is this problem is not a minor one. It's so major that Paul is leaving the important work he was doing to come and check on it. And he says, if it's not dealt with before I get there, I'm going to deal with it. In discipline, he says. And so he says, agree. Speak the same thing. He's referring to a local congregation, and therefore it applies to First Baptist Church of Keller. Let us say and speak the same thing. Fundamentally, he's speaking about the gospel, that we ought to all speak the same gospel. A person should be able to hear any of our pastors in our church preach on any of our Sunday mornings and hear the same gospel. I'll take it a step farther. Any person... Should, could, could be able to visit any of our 40 adult Sunday school classes and hear the same gospel. That's what he means. We, we must speak the same thing. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But it's not just the essentials of the gospel. He's referring to unity of doctrine in general. And I've heard many times in my lifetime, well-meaning Christians say things like, oh, we shouldn't preach and teach doctrine because doctrine causes disunity. No, friends, doctrine is the thing around which we must be united. If we're not united around truth, then we just have a social club. Here's how it plays itself out in the evangelical church. Have you ever been in a Bible study group where the facilitator of the group opens his Bible, reads a couple of verses, and then goes around the circle in the room asking this question, what did that verse mean to you? And then everyone in the group gives their interpretation of what this verse means to them. Now next time that happens to you, next time you're in a Bible study group here or elsewhere, and, and the facilitator says, what does this, group, this verse mean to you? Here's what you say, two words, who cares? All right, and, I, and I'm not being ugly, who cares? That's not even the right question. The right question is not, what does this verse mean to you? The right question is, what does this verse mean? And see, this is what's happened in New England, specifically, and America at large, as it relates to the evangelical church. In our attempts to broaden the tent, to let everybody stay in, regardless of what they believe, we have scuttled doctrine and ask everybody, what does it mean to you? And whatever they say, we say, yeah, that's right. Whereas logic tells us 10 people can't have 10 opinions and all be right. What does the Bible mean? He says, agree about what the Bible means. He says that there be no division. He traces the source of division in the church to lack of biblical doctrine. The Greek word here is where we get the word schism, to tear into various parts. And that's what had happened in the Corinth. They had divided themselves into at least four parts. Friends, it begins with 
the right view of the authority of God's Word. You know that this month, October 31st specifically, is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Martin Luther tacked those 95 theses against the Catholic Church on the church house door in Wittenberg, Germany. And the essence of the Reformation is an attempt to answer the question, how can man be made right with God? The Catholic Church of Luther's day was saying, man can be made right with God by following papal dictates and decrees, by buying writs of indulgences, by praying people out of purgatory. And Luther reads the Bible and says, no, the Bible says that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And so here is the doctrine around which we must unify. And, and the great rallying cry and theme that emerged from the Reformation, sola scriptura. We have to have a basis. We have to have a bedrock of truth. I remember three election cycles ago when the two candidates were debating one another and the moderator asked the very um, frightening question to these men. I could see it in their eyes. What is your definition of sin? And the candidate that eventually became the President of the United States said this, sin is violating my own personal standards. Now, you unpack that a little bit. What is he saying? He's saying, I am the moderator of what is right and wrong. It is not right or wrong until I make a determination about it. Well, what the reformer says is that there is a standard of truth. It's not my opinion. It is the Word of God. And it has not changed until this good day. What happened in New England, and I see it, saw it this week, is that you had churches who at one time held to the doctrines clearly revealed, once for all delivered to the saints, who in an attempt to broaden their tent and let more people in, it had the opposite effect. When people came in, they saw there was no substance to it. And so they left in droves. In fact, on Wednesday of last week, I toured a building of a church that was founded before the Revolutionary War. And this church was beautiful, a beautiful edifice. But it had dwindled in membership over the years until they had less than 10 members. And the pastor of that church of 10 members was an open practicing homosexual. And they got to where they could not maintain the building and they were going to have to let it go. And so they were willing to sell it to our evangelical church planner for pennies on the dollar. And so he's going in now and he's renovating the building and there's a group of about 40 faithful believers there and they're meeting and the Lord is doing a good work there. But as we <clears throat> sat in the, the musty, mold-infested basement, praying for this new church plant. The pastor said, you know, it's interesting. He says, I've been going through the records that they left behind. And as recently as 50 years ago, this church still preached the true gospel. In less than 50 years, a church that was founded in the Great Awakening went from preaching the true gospel to having less than 10 members and their pastor living in sexual perversion. How did it happen? It's because they did not hold 
to the doctrines once for all delivered to the saints. Their standard became their own opinions rather than the Word of God. And dear friends, it can happen here. We are only one generation removed. If one generation does not take that mantle of leadership, if one generation does not take that baton of sola scriptura and pass it to the next, First Baptist Church of Keller will cease to be, and rightly so. As I look around the room, there's very few of us who will be around in 50 years. Some of you will be, maybe. Certainly not 100 Will First Baptist Church of Keller be here if the Lord tarries His coming? I pray it will be. And I pray that we will never have times of disunity. He says, let there be no division. He says, that you may be made complete. Paul brings it around to healing. This word made complete means to, to mend a net. It can't even mean to mend a broken bone. That's what had happened in Corinth. In just a few years, they'd been broken and divided. And Paul says, let this... Unity around doctrine, the Word of God, mend what is broken. John MacArthur defines what he's talking about with these words. He says, they were unified in truth by beliefs, standards, and in applied principles of living. They were unified by truth, by beliefs, standards, and applied principles of living. That is, our worldview was informed by sola scriptura. Our evangelism is to be informed by sola scriptura. This is the standard. And finally, before we close, let me make some practical application. I've thought this week about what is the best way to minimize disunity. Because after all, until we get to heaven, we're going to have some conflict. Paul says, as, as much as is within you, Live at peace with all men. As long as there's more than one human being in a church, you're going to have some conflict. Same as you do in your marriage. But we need to minimize it. How do we do that? Well, I, I thought and prayed, but you know, I just keep, kept coming around to two words. Grow up. Grow up. And as we're talking about what we owe to one another in the context of the local church, here's what I mean. We owe it to one another and future generations of Christians who are to come after us. We owe it to one another to make progress in sanctification. To grow to maturity. You know this as a parent. When they're three, four, five years old, especially when there's multiple in that age range like at our house, it seems like you're never going to get past this phase, right? Where they fight over M&Ms and Power Rangers and video games. And you can't wait... Till that day when the oldest says to the youngest, you go first, my dear. <laughs> no, I'll wait to eat after you've eaten. And you know when that happens, they've grown up, right? They've matured. The same thing in the church is that we can recognize maturity and sanctification happens when we start putting one another first. When we're always not demanding our own way. How does that happen? Well, the same way it happens with your kids. It's through life experience, but it's also the natural process of maturity. As, as they eat food and they get exercise, they grow up physically. The Bible says that it is our milk and our meat. To grow up spiritually, we have to take in the Word. So we owe it to one another to be here, to be doing our quiet times, 
to be studying the scripture and memorizing the scripture. You say, well, no one's hurt but me. That's not true. When you're connected to other Christians in the church, your lack of progress hinders unity ultimately in the church. And as we said, the biggest problem is that the Lord's goodness name is at stake. Let me get real practical here. Step on your toes just a little bit more, okay? You know Brother Jack Gatewood, our education pastor. He loves statistics. Brings them to our meetings every week and we go over them. Truth is, I don't pay a whole lot of attention to them most days. I'm not a statistics guy. But, but he said one the other day, it really got my attention. He said, last year, we averaged 1,237 in Sunday school as a church family. But then he said, every month of the 12 months of the calendar year, we had more than 1,700 individuals who came at least once. Now that sounds great. 1,700 to 1,900 people came at least once in the month. But as we drilled down a little bit on that, we found there's a whole segment of our church who comes to church about once a month. And dear friends, not to put too fine a point on it, but would you agree with me that you're not going to make a lot of progress in sanctification if your commitment is to come to church only once a month? That'd be like going to work once a week. That'd be like going to football practice once a week. You're not going to grow. You're not going to get better. And so, can we just make a commitment that if you're going to be a member of our church, you're going to be here when the Word of God is taught unless you are providentially hindered, unless there is something that you can't possibly avoid. That's just the basic. And beyond that, in your personal Bible study and in your, your growth, you do that not just because it's good for you. You know it is. But because as a member of this church, you owe it every other member of this church to make progress in sanctification to maintain the unity and the good name of Christ in Keller, Texas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And Father, I'm like everyone here. It's painful sometimes as we see our own deficiencies. And Lord, we like to, to thank you a lot around here for the unity that our church enjoys. And I do thank you for that. But Lord, I was reminded this week of how quickly that can be lost if we are not committed to truth and to the Word. Father, may it never happen here. May every generation that comes behind us be past that baton of faithfulness to Christ and allegiance to His Word. Father, I pray that when all of us are gone, if Christ tarries His second coming, that there would be found a faithful church at First Baptist Keller. Father, we know that will only happen if the members of this church commit right now to making progress in sanctification so that the good name and reputation of Christ would be made known in this community. We pray you do that for your name's sake. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.